Four and a half, 57%, and seven. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Ask Science Mike! Welcome to Ask Science Mike. This is a weekly podcast where we believe every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. I'm your host, Mike McCargett. So good to talk with all of you today. Uh, our title is a little bit cryptic, and I've got a kind of a special show planned for you. Um, but before we get to that, a really quick announcement. Uh, I've been working on something called the Overview Program, and I just got news that it uh, the first first group is just about full. Uh, so um, here's the heck what I'm talking about. The Overview Program... I mean, what would you think about having a call once a week with me and a few other people to go through a program for managing life changes and life transitions? You know what I mean. Transitions in faith or sexuality, gender identity, employment, relationships, living circumstances, all the kind of things that often make us feel isolated and alienated because we find ourselves either isolated from or at odds with our existing community. So uh, that's been the bulk of my work um, it, ever since I started doing the Science Mike thing back in you know 2013, 2014 time period. And uh, so I've built a science-based program for helping people move through those things. It's not therapy or counseling. It's not coaching. It is a way of working together uh, to do collaborative problem solving and life troubleshooting. And uh, we're getting ready to launch the first group. I've had a great response so far. If you'd be interested in working with me either in, a, in small groups in a, something we call Overview Stations or one-on-one -on -one in something called Overview Voyages, just go to overviewprogram.com where you can learn all about it and fill out an application to join the program. Now, it's available to everybody, so don't worry. Um about any anything you might have in your head about you can't participate the only limiting factor is space what i mean is there are scholarship positions available uh every single time we do this and uh we want to make sure that income is not the reason anybody doesn't participate so if you're curious at all head to overviewprogram.com and if you're still curious after you watch the videos and read the copy you can click the button that says join the program and, uh, you know, make an application and set up a, a, an introductory call to see if this is something that works for you and works for me. And if so, I'd love to uh, work with you. So, uh, 4.5, 57%, and 7 is what we are talking about today. And uh, those numbers probably seem rather random, and I guess they kind of are. Um. But the four and a half is where we're going to start. And the four and a half there refers to months. And four and a half months is how quickly after um, a patient was infected with COVID-19 uh, that they were infected with COVID-19 again. That's 142 days apart. If you'd like to learn more about this, it's in the news. I, in particular... Uh, I'm following um, a, a, a virologist, an immunologist, who talks about it on Twitter. So I'll have a link to that Twitter thread in the show notes here. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so that that at first might be like panicky news. Oh my gosh, wait, someone really did get reinfected with COVID-19. We've wondered for a while, there's been scattered reports of reinfection, but never attached with you know really rigorous clinical data. In this case, we have that rigorous clinical data. This is someone from uh, Hong Kong University uh, who had COVID-19 and um, then did some traveling and came back and had COVID-19 again. And we could tell from uh, genetic testing and the viruses that were shed uh, that this person was infected uh, in Europe, which they conveniently traveled to. Um, and so that means there is some immunity to COVID-19 uh, and that you can also definitely get it again now. There were some good things here. Uh, their first uh, infection was a mild case, was symptomatic. Their second infection was asymptomatic. And in the second case, they had a much stronger immune system response than their first exposure. Um, so COVID-19 is caused by SARS-CoV-2. And the COV is coronavirus, right? We sometimes just shorten COVID-19 to the coronavirus. But there's not one coronavirus. There are many, 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 many coronaviruses. And they're sneaky little germs. Um, about a quarter of common colds are caused by coronaviruses. And one of the reasons we don't have a vaccine for the, for the common cold is one, so many viruses cause it. And two... Coronaviruses are, are, are sneaky. They mutate a lot. They like to grab RNA from their host constantly. And so they, they create a confusing profile for immune systems. And uh, it's never made sense to invest a lot of energy medically in making a vaccine for coronaviruses that cause the common cold because they only cause a quarter of cold cases. And you uh, colds are annoying, but unless you are in very poor health, they're immunocompromised or um, very old or very young. Uh, common colds are typically, I mean, they're they're obnoxious, but they're not life-threatening in any way. And so uh, the way our medical system handles what we research tends to be on the things that cause the biggest quality of life impairment and the highest rates of premature death. Now, COVID-19 is changing that. So when you hear people get reinfected with COVID-19, the first thing I want to tell you is don't panic because this is how immunity works, right? When you get a cold and you don't have it again for a while, this is how it works. And when your immune system uh, recognizes a viruses, there's a, there's a primary and secondary response. The primary response is basically instant and non-discriminatory, works on any foreign uh, material that enters your body. And then the secondary immune response is um, specific and tailored to a given pathogen. This also means there probably isn't a path to herd immunity just through exposure to coronavirus. It mutates too quickly. So um, it means if we just try to go back to normal, a lot of people are going to die and potentially Coronavirus just never reaches equilibrium with the population. It becomes something like the common cold where people have it all the time. Only like a percent of people who get it die. And uh, that would be a very high mortality rate indeed. That would be uh, world changing and society changing. Because so likely going to require 
a vaccine for us to get back to any shade of normal with uh, this pandemic we're in. Now, remember, we've talked about this several times in the podcast. COVID-19 is beatable without a vaccine if you make stringent enough interventions, meaning you do total lockdowns uh, when your caseload gets too high so that the virus doesn't have a chance to spread to get the caseload very low again. And once it's very low, temperature screening, frequent testing, and contact tracing, case isolation uh, can you know basically control the virus. Uh, we're seeing that in, in, in several cultures in the world where they're basically back to normal, no face masks or anything. Uh, that might not work with a country the size of the U.S. It definitely won't work when a lot of international travel kicks back up. And so you would need these periods of lockdowns again to get back to baseline or just continue with masking and social distancing protocols and avoiding indoor spaces. The point here is we could be in for quite a long haul with COVID-19. I've kind of been saying that for a while. I don't like to panic people, um, but I'm noticing people are already restless. I, you know, so many people are just traveling again. Uh, people are, even if, if they're not, and they're in a community where you're not really allowed to do indoor dining. They just get together in large numbers in private spaces. And um, that's part of the reason we had such a big surge in cases. Another surge could come again. And this news about reinfection just lets us know we have a very significant adversary here in COVID-19. That's the four and a half of the four and a half months that I talked about. Now, what about the 57%? Well, I'll tell you all about that right after we get a word from this week's sponsor. And this week, uh, this episode has been brought to you by BetterHelp. My friends at BetterHelp are long-time sponsors of the show, Ask Science Mike. And they are an affordable, private, online counseling service that is wonderful. I use BetterHelp. I'm a paying customer. Uh, my wife, Jenny, uses BetterHelp. She's a paying customer. We are both BetterHelp members. And in this time... When social distancing is advised, uh, BetterHelp is just a wonderfully accessible way to get the mental health support that many of us need to continue to be well or even strive to be well in the face of this pandemic. BetterHelp has over 11,000 licensed therapists and counselors uh, on their service, and over a million people have signed up. Here's how it works. You go to betterhelp.com slash sciencemike, where they'll give you 10% off your first month just for using that URL, and then you fill out a questionnaire where they help understand the specific challenges that you are facing in your life, and then connect you with a counselor who specializes in those things. So a lot of times people don't get therapy uh, because they have trouble finding a therapist. Well, BetterHelp handles that for you. And then guess what? If for some reason that therapist is not a fit, BetterHelp will connect you with a new therapist at any time. No questions asked. No additional charge. You can text your therapist throughout the week. You get to connect with them on phone calls and video calls. It is just a tremendous program that I love and I think you will too. So if you'd like to get started on improving your mental health, even with all the challenges we face in the world today, just go to BetterHelp.com slash ScienceMike. Okay, four and a half months, 57%. Now, what is the 57%? Well, it is very related to four and a half months, and you'll find out as we move through this episode. 
YouGov and CBS just released the results of a poll. That poll was for the period of August 19th to August 21st. This is very fresh data at the time I am recording and releasing this podcast. Now, remember, officially over 170,000 people in the United States have died from COVID-19. When we do projections based on annualized death rates uh, and the difference year over year and an average deaths um, for 2020 versus 2019 and, and previous five-year periods, uh, the death rate is up more than that. So some experts believe that it could be more than 200,000 cases or uh, 200,000 deaths from COVID-19 so far. A lot of people, a lot of people have died from COVID-19. There's just no way around it. And in this poll, this YouGov CBS poll, they asked if people uh, thought that was uh, a, a fair number of people to have died. So basically, they asked the question, do you think the number of U.S. fatalities from coronavirus is, and then there was multiple choices. First was higher than what is being reported. Uh, no, I am reading the wrong <laughs> question. I so care. I even highlighted the correct question before I read this and still read the unhighlighted question. Excuse me. The question was, in evaluating U.S. efforts against the coronavirus pandemic, do you consider the number of U.S. fatalities from coronavirus to be acceptable or unacceptable? Right? Acceptable or unacceptable? And... 69% of people said unacceptable. 31% said acceptable. Wow. And um, a majority of men and women, strong majorities, uh, my apologies to my non-binary and genderqueer friends, uh, you're not listed in the data as so often happens. I, I, I'm, I'm not making a choice to exclude you. Um, but so among what is in the survey labeled male and female, um, high, high, high rates say that uh, unacceptable. And then when we look at age group, a rare agreement in 18 to 29 and 65 plus and everybody in between, massive numbers of people say that death rate is unacceptable. So how on earth did we get to 31%? Because that's, that's higher than we see in the, the different groups. When we look at ideology and we break it out by liberal, moderate, and conservative, 8% of liberals say that the number of U.S. fatalities from coronavirus so far are acceptable. 8%. Among moderates, 26%. That's a big jump from 8 of it's still only about 1 in 4 people. And among conservatives, people who self-identify as conservatives, 57% of people said that over 170,000 deaths in the United States is acceptable. It, it, it's the big conservatives are so radically different from any other group measured by age, by gender, by income, any other data set in this 
study, the only one that receives a majority of people, a strong majority, frankly, people saying that the number of deaths from coronavirus are acceptable are among self-identified conservatives. Now, let's put these numbers in question for a moment. Bryant Klaus is a journalist with the Washington Post and compiled this data. This is for Sunday. In Italy yesterday, there were three counted COVID-19 deaths. In France, there were nine. In Japan, there were 14. In Canada, there were seven. In the UK, there was 18. And in Germany, there were three. Right? Total population of those countries, 439 million people. And you're talking about less than 50 deaths. In the United States, counted yesterday, 974 COVID-19 deaths. We are losing far more people a day to COVID-19 than we lost people during World, excuse me, World War II. Uh, I remember 9-11 and the deaths of a few thousand Americans issued a wave of grief that lasted for years. And here we are losing a thousand people a day. And 57% of conservatives say that's okay. The United States population, by the way, is 328 million. So less than 50 deaths for for 439 million people, and then 974 deaths for 328 million people in the United States, and 57% of people who self-identify as conservative say that is acceptable. Four and a half. 57%. What about seven? Seven is the number of years, purportedly, that Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of Liberty University, which is a bellwether conservative evangelical institution, is purported to have had a secret affair, he and his wife, with a uh, young person who uh, was a business partner of theirs. So they made a business partner basically on the outcome of this affair. Uh, Jerry Falwell's wife, by the way, is named Becky. Um, and so the accusation here from this uh, Mr. Granda is that uh, he had a six-year and change, almost seven-year relationship with Becky Falwell as Jerry Falwell watched. Uh, voyeurism kind of thing. Um, which, let's be real, I'm science, Mike. Um, I don't shame people for their sexual choices. That's none of my business what Jerry and Becky Falwell do in their personal time. I really don't care. What I do care is that uh, Jerry Falwell has inherited a political and business dynasty from his father, uh, Jerry Falwell Sr., based on moral grandstanding and moralism. And that students at Liberty University can 
forfeit their tuition and be expelled from the university for far less than this. So my concern here is not with the sexual conduct of Jerry Falwell Jr., assuming this was all consensual and there was no coercion involved. Um, my concern here is the hypocrisy. So the entire time Jerry Falwell has been denouncing the moral behavior of progressives, has been denouncing the sexual uh, depravity of queer people, and speaking of the sanctity of marriage, it seems Mr. Falwell has also been engaged in the kind of conduct that he claims is unacceptable and has been getting incredibly wealthy and getting incredible political power engaged in the most rank and deep hypocrisy imaginable. I have a link um, to a, a very well-sourced and well-researched religious news service article that you can read. Again, I don't care what Jerry Falwell does in his bedroom at all. It's none of my business. What I care is the duplicity, which brings me to another. Now, Jerry Falwell is a, a big leader in the evangelical movement. Uh, but if we go just to political conservatism, Steve Bannon, Trump's former campaign manager. Now, I know a lot of you hate it when I go partisan. Don't worry. We're going to come back to all this. There's a reason I'm bringing all this up. It is not to preach or to grandstand. Believe me. Um, I have no interest in these people in talking about them. But Steve Bannon and three others have been charged with fraud in a fundraising campaign, basically where they claim to create a nonprofit charity designed to building the wall at the southern border and took in hundreds of thousands of dollars in that and then defrauded those donors, paying themselves that money, despite professing they would not. That is called fraud. And uh, Donald Trump himself and other leaders in Trump's campaign and administration endorsed this charity. And these men took donors' money and pocketed it. Something, frankly, very similar that we saw have seen has been going on with the NRA, another bellwether conservative nonprofit is actually in danger of losing its charter in New York City um, for doing the same thing, taking in donations from conservative people and uh, spending it selfishly and fraudulently. Now, what is the connection between four and a half months and the immunity? 57% of conservatives saying that the number of COVID deaths is acceptable and seven years of hypocrisy from Steve Bannon and this, this indictment and uh, arrest of Steve Bannon. Where am I going with all this? Well, you've heard me say something before on this program. The listenership of this podcast is diverse in every way imaginable. It is diverse in terms of the gender identities of people who are listening. It is diverse in terms of the sexual orientations of people listening. There is diversity here among racial and ethnic boundaries and lines. 
And there's diversity in this podcast in political ideology and religious identity. We all know that I am very progressive. (laughs) Religiously, I am very, 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 very liberal in my theology. Um, I am socially progressive. And yet, a significant number of the people who listen to this program are conservative evangelical Christians. And I've always wondered about that. Now, I I take great pains to be non-judgmental in my approach to life. But there's been something sticking in my head for a long time that I haven't had the language for. And I still don't know if I do, but we've got to start talking about it. And that is this. The Trump era has been so disorienting for me and for so many people who grew up in religious homes and in religious cultures. Here's why. I believed it all. I believed it all. I believed that the Bible told us how to be good people. I believed that Jesus came to redeem us. And I think a lot of evangelicals, I've always thought a lot of evangelicals and other Republicans are actually really decent, good-hearted people because I think I am. And I think I was when I was an evangelical Republican. I didn't become a good person and then stop being an evangelical or a Republican. By the way, I used to be both an evangelical and a Republican. And the reason I started moving away from those things is I saw the impact of my ideology. I just started to learn. I said, okay, my theory was wrong. So I'm, I've changed my beliefs. I've changed my ideologies. And, uh, you know, I'm humble enough from being wrong so much, I know that my beliefs and ideologies will change again in the future as I learn more about the world that is built into my expectations. There are so many earnest, humble people that I grew up with who are still earnest, honest, humble people. And they are white conservative evangelicals. And I bet, I bet they're part of that 43%. My theory is that if you are conservative and evangelical and white and straight and listening to my voice right now, you're probably part of that 43%. And that's why you keep listening to this show. And that's why you have discussions with people who disagree with you. Because you're a good person. And you care about other people and your religious beliefs and your political beliefs are ways that you try to care for other people. And I want you to know that I believe that. And I'm going to get angry emails from some of my progressive friends. That's okay. Who are going to be upset I even said that. But um, I think you're good people. And part of what I've tried to do on this podcast is hold the space for you 
that other people have held for me that allowed me to grow and to change. You know, there was a time in my life when I thought that for two men to be married to each other was sin, was an abomination to God. And I don't think that anymore. And the reason I don't is because somebody held space for me. So I try to hold space for you. And be clear, I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to get you to change your beliefs to some specific place. I believe the deepest, deepest held value I hold is that when you hold space for people and they feel safe, people just about universally become more empathetic. People just about universally become more kind. So often, shame holds us down. I don't know Jerry Falwell. I don't particularly want to know Jerry Falwell. But I bet Jerry Falwell has felt a lot of shame for a long time. Even as he grew wealthy and powerful, I bet there was some guilt and shame in Jerry Falwell's life. So about that 57%, do I think that they're all bad people? No, but I think some of them are cruel people. And I think some of them are predatory people. I think people like Steve Bannon and Donald Trump and Jerry Falwell Jr. have figured out that if they talk a certain way, to a certain audience of people, they can become more wealthy and more powerful and basically con people. So I think people get taken advantage of. And the other thing is, I think some people are here for the cruelty. You know, some people are like me. They grew up in a certain environment where they were taught that we don't see color, and all races are the same, and that great saint Martin Luther King came along and showed us the problems of racism, so we all gave it up and moved moved past it. Thank goodness we all solved racism. What a hopeful message, by the way. What a fun way to grow up that was. It was a total fabrication and a lie, but it was a fun way to grow up. And when you have that framing where you actually do believe all people are equal and then you start to learn facts about the world, about incarceration rates, about the rates of police violence, about wealth disparities, well, you can't help but say, wait, that's not what I was taught. And you start to wake up. It starts to open your eyes and it's shocking and it provokes grief. And I bet a lot of you who are listening who are conservative and evangelical, part of what you do is you have listened to my voice over these years and you've heard new things about race and racism and sexuality and discrimination and the experiences people have in their lives and it breaks your heart. I think of of my friend Beth Moore. Beth Moore and I are very, very different theologically. Um. But Beth Moore reminds me of the kind of evangelical I was and the kind of people I thought I was growing up with and that Beth Moore doesn't want cruelty to happen to anyone. Right? And I know Beth Moore's teachings on sexuality have grievously hurt 
members of this audience, and I don't deny, gosh, I don't deny the suffering you've been through. Don't mishear me. I am not standing in defense of Beth Moore's theology. I am saying there's something inherently teachable about a Beth Moore and what I'm calling this 43% of evangelicals that isn't there in that 57%. So how does this work? Well, number one, it seems like the modern religious, political, American industrial complex is becoming cultish. And I don't say that word lightly. I mean, the way the leaders behave, the force of personality, the intentional violation of norms in a progressive manner to indoctrinate people to accept any action of the leader is a cult-like indoctrination of this group. And then other people are quiet and don't stand up. Very few conservatives, no matter how bothered they are in their bellies, speak out against their leadership. And here's why. I actually understand that. I grew up in that culture. In conservative spaces, both religious and theological, there is an indoctrination of niceness. What do I mean? We're taught you you support your leaders. We're taught you support your pastor. You support your president. Right? Unless unless they violate God's word. Other than that, you support them. So if someone does violate God's word and they're 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 repentant, you then okay, everything's just fine. That's selectively applied, right? So Barack Obama, that's why you have to present Barack Obama as a Muslim. You have to present him as as as, as against the church so that you can't accept any forgiveness. Uh, or you can't forgive Barack Obama for anything, right? But Trump, your position as this Christian leader, a baby Christian I've heard literally described as. So this niceness means you're told not to question authority, you're told not to push back, you're, you're given a subservient posture towards leadership. And that a group that's been trained to be subservient towards authority are wildly exploitable by authoritarians. So there's been this multi-generational indoctrination of good white people, polite white society, to be exploitable. Trump didn't make that. Trump just went, wow, I can use this, right? This guy's kind of like a a career-long institutional con man. And he has exploited that. And these leaders use Scripture to do that. And because they're, the way they read Scripture, which is, uh, you know, smart, scholarly people who study the Bible call that a hermeneutic, their hermeneutic is incredibly simplistic. They take the text at face value, both with the Bible and the Constitution. And when you do that, you oversimplify the narratives. If you un- really understand the New Testament, a book that I love, you know, I have friends who say they can't stand the Bible, it's poorly written, it blah, blah, blah. I totally disagree. I think if you think the Bible isn't good, you're using the same simplistic lens that conservatives use to read it. 
because the Bible is an incredibly complex, nuanced library of books that uncovers a very, very complicated history. By the way, there's a Christian Bible and a Hebrew Bible. Let's acknowledge that. But the Christian Bible, often called the New Testament, um, has a particular lens. Because although the Gospels, for example, are purported to be written by the followers of Christ who walked around with him as uh, Jesus did his earthly ministry, a better historical analysis and understanding of this text means they were, we understand they were written later. After a very important event, which is in AD 70, the Roman siege of Jerusalem, basically there was an independence movement that was successful um, in Jerusalem. And then the Romans came in and cleaned house, burnt most of the city to the ground, and destroyed the mother church in Jerusalem. And so the people who are writing most of the New Testament are writing with the understanding that Christians became a pretty controversial movement in the kingdom. And uh, Rome didn't mess around. And so there's a lot of verbiage in the Gospels about cheerfully serving your master that make a lot of sense if you're terrified of being mass executed by the world's great superpower. So you take those texts and you teach them to people like me when you're a kid, when we're children, and we become very compliant. You know, it was easy for me to change my beliefs about race and racism and sexuality compared to finding the courage to speak out about them because the indoctrination about subservience was so simple. So what I'm telling you is based on my understanding of four and a half months of the pandemic, of reinfection, is we have a long haul in front of us COVID-19, and right on the heels of COVID-19 are the accelerating challenges we face from climate. We have big problems to address in our world, but 57% of conservatives are exploiting an indoctrination of niceness to keep the remaining 43% quiet and subservient. And so even though that is not a majority of the population, it is a majority of the economic resources in the country. And it is a majority of the electoral votes based on the way our land uh, is given votes by the Constitution effectively. The Senate is a structure that makes land have votes. And here's what I want to talk with you about, friends. What are we going to do if you're in that 43% or if you're not, if you're, you know, a leftist, got a few of those listening. Uh, these days I'm, I'm basically one myself. Um, you know, I've been so frustrated. There's members of my family I don't talk to anymore, really. I can't. They've gone so far into this new cult, this cult of Trump that, you know, we used to disagree before even passionately, but something is different here. And that difference is this Trump cult that has taken the 57% willingly and enthusiastically and the 43% reticently and tacitly 
And the stakes are high right now. It looks like uh, the president's illegally using government powers to try to stay in office. Things like hosting parts of the RNC at the White House, the, the Republican National Convention, uh, dismantling the Postal Service to affect mail-in ballots during a pandemic, uh, casting uncertainty about elections, things that, you know, it's, it's keep power at all costs kind of stuff. And that's concerning enough. American authoritarianism, which turns into an American fascism, is bad for the whole world, including Americans, friends. But this culture of niceness, this indoctrinated niceness that means we can't speak out in opposition to our leaders, is becoming an increasingly existential threat to society. And I am not sure what to do about it. That's what this podcast is about. Now, I know you listen to my voice because often I provide insights and things that I've learned. And what I'm curious about, I have an email address that you can email. It is hello at mikemccarg.com. That's the email address that my email list comes from. And I, I reset it up so I could get email there. I'd love if you feel like it. I would like to ask you to email me at hello at mikemccarg.com. And I'd like to know your thoughts about how, here's the thing, how we're going to handle this. When we talk about conservative Americans, it's millions of people. Hundreds of millions of people. Hundreds meaning as soon as you get a 101 million, it's hundreds, right? I don't mean there's 200 million conservatives. There are not. And when we talk about that 57%, the kind of like we're with Trump no matter what crowd, that's tens of millions of people with incredible capital resources. Um, and they are dug in on masks and climate change and how great this president is. And a lot of the 57%, they are increasingly overt in their white supremacist and white nationalist leanings. And um, and the poor 43% is, is just pulled along. Because if you're in that 43% and you speak out against your leaders, you're chided at best. But if you show up in spaces where people like me are, are leading the dialogue... You can often be shamed for your religious beliefs and for your political beliefs because of your association with that 57%. And uh, as an organizer and a marketer and a communicator, I just feel stuck because no matter what happens in November, this dynamic is still going to be here. There's still going to be generations of white people who have been indoctrinated into niceness and subservience. There is still going to be professional con men who exploit that group for wealth and power while engaging in the deepest, deepest hypocrisy. What I am curious about is how do we undo the cult of nice? It has been so good in my life to see the way that my black friends critique their leaders. 
That has been such a growth for me. And to see the way my friends of color critique their leaders. It has been revelatory and eye-opening for me. But I am struggling to know how to replicate that eye-opening experience to enough of us good white people fast enough to save lives. And that's what's at stake. You know, if you don't want to talk about politics, I understand. You don't want to talk about politics. I know that it's uncomfortable. If you don't want to talk about justice, I understand why that's uncomfortable, although I am less sympathetic when we talk, don't want to talk about justice. But the stakes right now, friends, they're truly life and death. It's a thousand people a day are dying from COVID-19. And those of us in power right now say that's okay. And as bad as COVID-19 is today, it is nowhere near as bad as climate change is going to be tomorrow. And the point of my podcast here is to not make you feel hopeless. Not at all. My goodness. I never want to make you feel hopeless. I think about these things because I believe society is something that we make together. I believe Our world is something we all cooperate to produce. So everything we think is unchangeable is just something somebody made up and convinced everybody else to go along with. Everything. The Constitution is just a thing some people made up and convinced other people to go along with. And if enough people go along, you can carry the force of law and the force of state violence and all those things. And what we're all going along with right now is producing suffering and death. So how do we break apart the culture of niceness and replace it with a culture of empathy and a culture of solidarity and a culture of understanding? Because friends, we are all in this together. We are all in this together. The levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, oh gosh, it affects us all. The viral particles that are shed during a COVID-19 infection, that affects us all. Now, some of us have been insulated by privilege, and that insulation will get thinner and thinner with each passing year. It doesn't matter how much your house costs in the Bay Area right now. Everyone is covered in the same cloying, choking, dark smoke from these fires. We are all in this together. And so this podcast this week is I'm asking you to tell me your ideas and your vision about how we do that. So you can do that by just emailing hello at mikemccarg.com and I am going to read each and every message that you send me and then discuss what I learned from those messages on a future episode of this podcast. 
Ask Science Mike is brought to you by an amazing team of people. Greg Nordine does production and sound design. Victory Palmazano is the show's producer. Uh, Caitlin uh, Hermstad is the show's executive producer. Tanner Hearn does logistical operations and support. Uh, Brent Cradle Management Services. Uh, Jeb Botterford wrote and recorded this theme song. And uh, my patrons on Patreon make the show possible and pick out the questions for the show on those weeks that we do questions. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and I can't wait to talk with you again very soon. Take care.